are in the middle of a, toward the end actually of a series through the book of Mark. Um, Mark is one of the Gospels, and there are 16 chapters, and we're looking at all 16 chapters, one per week, so 16 weeks, and we're in Mark 12 today. And a few weeks ago, I think it was Mark chapter 3, so I guess a couple months ago, uh, I had Rob Gleghorn, one of our elders, come up and join me, and we talked through the chapter. And I think a lot of people seem to really enjoy that, just kind of working through it. We spent some time that week before doing that together, preparing. And the reason I think that's so awesome is because uh, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. That's Proverbs 27, 17. Scripture makes this clear, and that could be gender neutral, as one woman sharpens, as one, yeah, as, one, as man, wait a minute. Okay, now I got to say it again. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another, so one woman sharpens another. You could look at that however you wish. But um, there is beauty in studying God's Word together. And I just want to encourage you to consider that. Our theme this year, 2019, has been Better Together, whether it be in life groups, whether it be getting to know other people in a larger room setting like this, whether it be in a men-specific or, or ladies-specific type gender-specific group, uh, there are lots of different ways to do things together. There is, there is wholeness and health and wonderful things that come from doing things together. So today, I wanted to do so again with somebody that you may or may not know. Some of you do, but his name is Clint Unruh. Clint is a guy who has been to seminary, who loves God's Word, who studies it well, and we enjoyed sitting down for several hours talking through this chapter. And I just want to share with you um, a little taste of how, what that looks like, encouraging you to find a brother or sister or group of people that you could also enjoy getting into God's Word with, and just let you see how it works, as Clint and I enjoyed so much. Uh, we would love to sit here for a couple hours and tell you all that we enjoyed talking through in Mark 12, but we're just going to do 32 more minutes now at this point. So um, how about this? Would you welcome Clint Unruh to the stage with me as he comes and shares? Where are you? There he is. There you go. So, um, as we Can begin... Can I say something real quick? Please Speaking do. about being sharp, I'll answer a question some of you guys may be thinking right now. We did not coordinate this. If I would have known that this guy was going to be looking this sharp, I would have tried a little harder. <laughs> you could take the vest off if you want, but anyway. Um, so, so, Mark chapter 12 is an awesome uh, chapter. There's a lot in here. There's 44 verses. It'll be hard for us to get through it all, but let's try to do it. If you have your Bible, please open it. Follow along with us. You can follow along on screen as well. But let's just look through what God says, and let's begin by asking Him to speak to us. I think just a simple prayer like that is so important when we look at God's Word. So, Lord, that is our prayer. As Clint and I set up here, I pray the Lord that you would speak through us. It's not about us. It's not about our thoughts or our wisdom. We're just trying to let you um, have the stage, have the mic, and talk through us and share with all of us the things that we need to understand, that we need to apply. It's one thing to understand the Word, but we want to do more than that. As James talked about, we don't want to just listen to the Word and, or hear the Word and so deceive ourselves. We want to do what it says. We want to honor you by putting it into motion. And so, Lord, help us in this way to just hear uh, with open ears, to hear with an open mind, and allow you to speak through what is said and touch our hearts in a way that would change us, mold us and shape us more and more into who you want us to be. That is our prayer. Lord, we pray all these things in the powerful name of your Son, Jesus. 
And uh, all God's people together said, Amen. Amen. All right, Clint, how about you read those first uh, 12 verses for us, and then we'll talk about it. Okay, the parable of the tenants, as it's called. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to the tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some of them they beat, and some they killed. He had still one, he had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? Will he come and destroy the, he will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was marvelous in the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told a parable against them. So they left him and went away. All right, so this is a parable. Um, I think everybody knows, but just to be clear, that means it's a story that Jesus uh, kind of made up to make a point, to talk through and make an illustration. And the Pharisees are right. This was a parable for them. This is what Jesus was trying to use to teach them, but others as well. And Clint, when we were talking, and by the way, people ask, how come, how come he uses the Bible and you just have a folder? Well, that's because Clint can read size 11 font and I cannot. So I blow mine up to size 26 because you know, that's just the way, there's no such thing as a Bible that has font like that. But, and I don't want to wear glasses. So there we go. But um, I'm in denial. All right. I should probably come to CR on Monday nights. But um, <laughs> so... There are a lot of interesting elements to this story. Uh, on Thursday, uh, speaking of doing things together, Clint and I, along with a bunch of others, some of you are in here, uh, maybe an average of 15 or so guys, get together every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. and we discuss and go through God's Word together, kind of like what we're doing, but just in a larger setting with 15 or so. And we spent an hour on just this, these 12 verses last or two weeks ago, and that was fantastic. And we can't do that this morning but uh, there is some beautiful things to, to take out of this. Clint, I loved how when we were talking yesterday about it, your, your takeaway in reference to Matthew 15, 8. Why don't you tell everybody what you were thinking there? I loved that. Uh, well, in Matthew 15, Jesus um, quoted a verse out of Isaiah, and he was speaking about, primarily about the leaders of Israel. And he said, these people honor me with their lips but their heart is far from me. And most of this chapter has to deal with Jesus giving some sort of criticism one way or another to the religious leaders of the, of the time here. Yeah, and they, because that's who they were. They struggled to honor God w with what really mattered, with their heart. On the exterior, they, were, they looked great, and they did a lot of wonderful things. And, and maybe at times there were healthy things that were happening there. Even maybe some of their motives at times were good as well. But he also called them whitewashed tombs in the sense that they looked good on the outside, really good, but were really struggling on the inside. So, um, so I, I just see this as very much a, a story against them again, but something that we can learn from too. We're not Pharisees. I'm not one. Clint's not one. None of us are. But I think we can take away from this 
to me, the thing that hit me the most as I read this story is how incredible God's love is. That, as we talked on Thursday a week ago, a week and a half ago, that um, the, lo- or the, uh, the patience, the kindness that this man in the story showed by being willing to even send his son after others had been beaten, treated shamelessly, and some even murdered, from a human perspective, doesn't make sense. Like, how much wisdom is there in sending your son after all that's happened to those? Why would you do that? I, that doesn't seem wise, but God doesn't answer to our standards. He doesn't, uh, he doesn't have to do things the way that we would think is best. He, in his infinite love, sent his son for us as this guy sent his son in this story. And this story just reminds me of the incredible love for the Lord that we should have because of the incredible love He has had for us. It just blows me away. Uh, Clint, what else stood out to you about it? Well, Jesus basically is giving a history lesson here in these 12 verses of both the nation of Israel and his, uh, Israel's leadership. And, um, and it's kind of like reading through the book of Judges. Uh, they, they had opportunities many times and then they blow it. And that's kind of been a, a pattern in my own life as well, unfortunately. Um, but one thing that I think is interesting here, you know, lest we be like the saying, those who don't know history are destined to repeat it. Um, I, I kind of draw a parallel here between these 12 verses and Ephesians 2.10. Do you have that? Yeah, where God's word says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand uh, so that we should walk in them. So, you know, you look at the effort that this uh, vineyard owner did. He, he planted the vineyard. He prepared the ground. He uh, put a fence around it. He put a tower in it. He dug the, the pits for the pressing of the, the grapes and turning into wine. He did all the work. He could have just let these lessees, the people that were going to lease this land from him, he could have let them do that. But he did all this work. And then if you look at that in Ephesians 2, um, Ephesians 2.10, God has foreordained good works for us to walk in, and he's actually prepared them already. So it's just our obligation uh, to walk in those good works that he has for us out of the pureness and the sincerity of our hearts. Mm, yeah. And, and when we mess up, as this, as this guy did in the story, God's love is, is, uh, has no bounds, uh, knows no boundaries. And in fact, we'll close our service today with re- singing about his reckless love, which anyway... You were going to say something else? Well, when we mess up, we can look at, look at all the people that Jesus sent. Or this is a you know, reflection of Jesus in this parable, but, uh, or of God. But um, you know, he sent all these servants. Some were beaten. Some were treated shamefully. Some were killed. And, and it said many others. He sent a whole lot of people uh, to try to get his point across. And his main point is that he loves mankind and that he's got a redemptive plan for them. And finally, he sent his son. Um, I can't imagine that. I can't imagine taking one of my daughters and putting them in harm's way, knowing that they're going to die on someone else's behalf. But when you mess up, you know, that, there's your encouragement right there. Incredible love. Well, let's keep going. Verse 13 says, And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians, uh, which were followers of Herod, um, kind of wanting to bring about the Roman uh, rule. Anyway, they sent some of these to trap him in his talk. Been there, done that many times. Um, and they came, to him, came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. 
Okay, so that sounds like a compliment, but this is really probably said, I would think, with tongue-in-cheek, kind of a sarcastic approach because their goal was not to compliment. Their goal was to trap. So the, here's their question in that context. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, Jesus said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a den denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. To me, that kind of jumps out at you know, what I talked about last week in 2 Timothy 2 and in other places when Paul frequently talked to the young man named Timothy that he was mentoring, even to the point he said, Stay away from foolish, even stupid arguments avoid such things, shut down such conversations because they're not going anywhere. And again, in, in an amazing and beautiful way, Jesus kind of shut this conversation down in a healthy way by giving them something that they had no response to. Uh, I love, Clint, how you referenced something in Genesis that I had not thought about when we were talking about this yesterday. Explain that a little bit. Well, Jesus, you know, he's asking them, bring me the coin, bring me the denarius, which was worth about a day's wages for the average worker. And he says, look, whose who's image is, is on here? So then he's saying, and I sympathize with these guys. I mean, I don't want to pay taxes either. But, you know, they did benefit from living in that society. They benefited from the protection that Rome offered them. Um, and so he's just saying, you're in the system, you're benefiting from the system, and you need to do your obligation to, to pay your part, what you're asked to. And he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, probably looking at that coin, and then he says, render to God the things that are God's. And my mind went back to Genesis 126, where God created man, and he says, the, the Trinity there, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are having a conversation, and they say, let us create man in our image. So as we look at each other, we're created in the image of God. We are gods. And so when he says, render to God the things that are gods, that's, that's me. That's rendering my whole self, giving all of myself, leaving nothing else, not just a little part, but giving my all to the Lord. Which is what we'll see here in just a minute um, toward the end of the passage or chapter here when he talks about loving God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength. Key word being all. I, I like to circle that in my notes or in my Bible and I think it is so important to understand that we are to give him all. Yes, we are to pay taxes, follow the law of the land. Scripture talks clearly about that in other places too. But love the Lord with all we've got. All we've got. It's a beautiful picture of that. Let's keep going. Uh, Clint, we're going to pick it up in verse 18. And Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And I'd add, that's why they're sad, you see. Uh. Uh, and they asked him a question <laughs> saying, Teacher... Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offering for his brother, offspring for his brother. This is what they call the Leverite marriage, and it's discussed in um, Deuteronomy. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. The second took her and died, leaving no offspring, and the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, 
is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. As for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. So, just as a little background, Pharisees and Sadducees were religious leaders, had some things in common, in particular, an enemy, a.k.a. Jesus, that they all wanted to discredit for somewhat similar motives, but they also argued among themselves in many situations, including about this topic, because Sadducees, never heard your little joke there before, that's good, Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection, Pharisees did, so they would often argue about this topic, and in this case, the Sadducees used their logic that they had probably used against Pharisees as well against Jesus to say, hey, how, how do you answer this? I mean, they tried to set him up for failure, if possible, to make him look bad, to discredit him, because they didn't believe in the resurrection. And Jesus used Scripture from the Old Testament that they knew very well against them and said, look, you don't even know the word that you represent because, and then he referenced this idea uh, with the burning bush situation with Abraham. He said, I am the God of Abraham, when God spoke to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He used in the original language, a present tense verb, not past tense. I am, the, I, not I was the God of Abraham back when he was alive and now he's dead. And I was the God of Isaac and Jacob. No, he said I am. And clearly expressing or, or, or talking through the idea that God is the God of alive, of the people who are alive. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob may have died in the physical realm, but they are still alive. He is still their God. He is the God of them today in the present tense. And that's what Jesus' argument is with them. You don't even understand the Scriptures. You are wrong in this way. And I think it's so powerful to understand that while Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, just like you and I, uh, they died, and we will as well someday in this life, what we have coming ahead of us when we get to heaven is beyond description. You referenced yesterday when we were talking 1 Corinthians 2.9 that says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has even imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. And so when we look at, at uh, what Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are dealing with, which we don't know exactly what all these details are, how that looks like, where are they at right now, what's heaven now compared to then. You know, I don't understand all of that, but I know that God is alive. And that these men and others are alive. That my mother who has gone before me is alive. Not in the physical realm, but alive in the realm that matters even more. And I love that, and I think there's great comfort in knowing that. You know, Revelation 2, 21 talks about how God will someday wipe every tear from our eye. I often share this passage in a funeral setting. You know, that there'll be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain. And we can relate to the idea of the absence of bad, but it's hard to relate to the presence of glory beyond what we can imagine because it's beyond what we can imagine. So if God doesn't tell us a ton of detail about how awesome heaven is going to be. I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, I used to think pearly gates and streets of gold and all that sounded, that's I mean, kind of cool, I guess, but kind of boring. Not interested in that. I'd a little rather, too sterile. <laughs> yeah, I'd rather go for a walk in the woods, you know, whatever. But um, but that's, God didn't tell us how awesome heaven's going to be because we can't relate. We live in a fallen world. 
So the absence of bad things like tears, death, sorrow, crying, and pain, that makes sense. I get it. Because those things, I totally understand those things. I don't like tears and sadness and crying and pain and death. I don't like any of that. The absence of that is good. But the presence of the things we can't even comprehend are going to be off the chart. So like when we were talking yesterday, I threw the question, Clint, what do you think? Are you and Shannon going to be married in heaven? Is there this mixed crowd, but I just tell you, people have asked me, so does this mean there's no sex in heaven? What does that mean? How do you, how do you address somebody who would ask such questions about marriage, intimacy, etc.? Well, I would assume if there's no marriage, there's not going to be any sex. <laughs> okay, good answer. <laughs> but I agree with you, Scott. I don't think that there's any chance any one of us would ever get to heaven and look back and reminisce on the good old days we had here on earth. Right. I don't think we're going to miss anything here that we may not have there. And I, I just feel like personally there's, there's some other realm of satisfaction and joy and fulfillment that we will get to experience that we've never gotten to experience here uh, that we can't even comprehend today. Nobody's going to get to heaven and be disappointed and be like, oh, man, this is great, but boy, this part over here, I had to take a step back and I missed that part. Nobody's going to have that. I like how Mac, and Mary, or Mac has said numerous times, oh, this passage tells me that Mary and I are not going to be married when we get to heaven. But I'll, my, one of my first things I think I heard you say is, I'm going to ask the Lord, but can she at least be my roommate? I'm like, <laughs> all right. And I've, I've used that. I think that's great. Is that basically the way you've said it? Yeah. So, and, and I know you feel that way about Shannon. I feel that way about Kim. And um, I just have to trust. I think we all have to trust that when we get to heaven, heaven is going to be infinitely better than we can even imagine. And never will we, will we be disappointed in any way. And uh, I love that. Well, we're going to run out of time, so let's keep moving. Uh, you want to read verse 28 and following? And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Yeah. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. All right. In uh, Matthew 22, Matthew records uh, the same situation, and he says all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. In other words, you get these two things right, and everything else will flow beautifully downstream from there. And, um, and, we need, and 1 Samuel talks about to obey is better than sacrifice, and if we would just obey these two simple commands, I mean, if we would really lock in and say, Lord, that's what I'm all about, I just want to... I want to go, to go to town on these two things, loving you with all I've got, my heart, soul, mind, and strength, which there is differentiation there that we probably don't have time to get into, but that is a beautiful thought, and to love my neighbor as myself. If we really did that with all that we had within us, then everything else would take care of itself. And uh, I, I love that, and I love how this guy, in contrast to the others who earlier were trying to trap Jesus, this guy, Jesus, responded to differently. The Bible says, Mark records that Jesus saw that he had answered wisely. 
I think it's safe to say not sarcastically. This guy wasn't trying to trap Jesus. He was in a real dialogue, a genuine, authentic dialogue. And then Jesus said to, to him something I think is really sad when he said, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Not far. In other words, you're not there. It, you know, and unlike horseshoes and hand grenades, being close is still not going to get you where you need to go. You know, no cigar. You're close, but no cigar. That's, that's, it, it's, it's a sad thing because, for one, we don't know of this guy's outcome beyond here. But let's say he stayed where he's at, and he just stayed not far. Close, but not there. Well, that, makes, that takes me to what Jesus said in the last book of our Bible in Revelation 3 when he talked about how um, that he would rather us be either all for him or far against him. But to be lukewarm means that he would spit us out of his mouth. And, and this guy is not far, which is, it's, in some respects, that's a great place to be. He's close. He's making progress. But if he stagnates and plateaus and stays close but not there, then that is one of the saddest things that could be. Um, what, what hits you about it, Clint? I just like how Jesus simplifies stuff for us. Um, there were 613 laws uh, in the Old Testament, and then if you were a Jew, the rabbis had many more for you. And Jesus sums it up in these two, uh, these two commandments, which is a, a summary of the Ten Commandments as well. The first four commandments of the Ten Commandments deal with offenses against God, and the last six deal with offenses against man. So he just says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, if you can remember those two things, the rest of this kind of just falls in place. Well, and you, you talked about how this, talk, talk about what you did yesterday in reference to Abraham, the first use of the word love. So there's a law in uh, interpreting scripture that's called the uh, principle or the law of first mention. And you want to look at the first time a word ever appears in the Bible. And typically, everything that follows will kind of build upon that usage of the, of the word. The first time that the word love appears in the Bible is Genesis 22.2, I think where God says to Abraham, take your son, your only son who you love, and go to a mountain that I'm going to show you and offer him as a sacrifice. And so the first time love is used is not between a man and a woman. It's between um, a father who loves his son, who is going to have to sacrifice his son, which God prevented him from at the last minute. But, um, and that's just a wonderful picture to me. I mean, this is what the scripture is uh, in, in, in summary, is God's redemptive plan for mankind. And God's plan to redeem mankind was to send his own son that he loved, that he loved dearly, on our behalf to die in our place, to take our shame and our suffering. Um, and if that's not a good use of the word love, uh, then we should go over that again. And if the first picture of uh, first use of the word love is when God called Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, and then, like you said, said no at the last second, told him you don't have to do it. That's a really interesting thought because when that came up with God being in that position, sacrificing his son, he didn't show restraint. I mean, he, he went ahead. He followed through. He did what was needed for the sake of those, for us, for all of us. Beautiful thought. And so I think of First John 4 where God's word tells us we love him because he first loved us. I mean, that's our motive. I mean, the reason I love God is I mean, there have been times when I did what was right because I didn't want to go to hell. But really, the much more prevailing and much more powerful thought is I choose to honor God because I understand at least a little bit. I'm understanding it more and more all the time as I grow in my walk with the Lord. I understand more and more how incredible the love 
of God is for us. And that's what compels me. That's what should compel all of us to love him with all we've got, with all our heart, all our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength. I love what he says there, his indescribable gift. Anyway, let's keep going. Verse uh, 35 says, And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, so through the power of the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. That's a quote from Old Testament. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him, and the great throng heard him gladly. I, I think we need to move on because I want to talk through a couple of things here at the end. But in short, I, I see that as a, another one of many wonderful pictures throughout the Old Testament that point toward Jesus as the Messiah. And that's what Jesus is trying to point to for these guys. Look, even David understood and recognized that the Messiah is coming. And Anyway, let, let's move on. Clint, you want to read verse 38? And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes, and like greetings in the marketplaces, and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. You know, in Luke 18, when we were looking at this yesterday, I thought, oh man, that is so much like what Jesus said here. When he told a parable, he said, two men, uh, uh, no, yeah, a parable. Two men went to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector, the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, probably loudly, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance, maybe in the dark, in the shadows maybe. Anyway, he would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus then said, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, but those who humble themselves will be exalted. Again, that's Luke 18, and I think that is so similar to what Mark records here in chapter 12 in the sense that we need to make sure. This is, this is not just something for us to go, yeah, look at those scribes. They're so out of line. They're so terrible. I mean, th there's an element of that to see here, but really, I think we need to look at this and say, Lord, what do you want to say to me? As we began our talk here, sitting at this table with prayer, Lord, how do, how do I allow this to soak in and apply to me? And I think the message is I need to be humble. I need to stay humble and recognize that whether I'm a pastor, whether I'm a somebody who studied a lot in Scripture or on, uh, on my own or in a, in a uh, uh, Bible college setting, it doesn't matter. I need to stay humble. I, I liked your input or your thought yesterday about these scribes and, and um, some of your thoughts there. What, what hits you about this? Well, you know, these guys were, they had so many laws that they um, had to abide by when they were copying the Scriptures. That's what the scribes did. They were Scripture copyists. And uh, so they were really well looked upon, um, and maybe rightfully so, as far as their position goes. But then they weren't honoring God. Back to Matthew 15, they weren't. On, they were uh, honoring Him with their lips, but not with all of their heart. And um, 
So they weren't allowed to receive any kind of pay for their teaching, but they could receive gifts. And so they would somewhat prey upon the weak. Uh, they would prey upon widows uh, to try to get them to uh, give them lavish gifts. Um, and they were just totally working the system here. Instead of having a uh, broken and contrite heart and, and working out of a love for God um, and a love for mankind, their angle was, what can I do to better myself at the expense of somebody else? And seeing that and hearing Jesus' rebuff of them leads you to think what? How, how does it hit Clint Unruh? You know what? It leads me to think about, um, let me reevaluate why I do the things I do. I try to think that I have a pretty good heart, but honestly, you know, there are times in my life where I have done things because I wanted, uh, I wanted to please others. Um, I, you know, that's um, an inherent fault of my own. Um, but we were talking yesterday about a pastor uh, that um, is in the Dallas area. I won't mention his name, but he recently resigned uh, several months back. And he resigned because he said, for all of my career, I've been trying hard to please my earthly father. I've been trying to get um, some kind of um, approval out of him. And, I'm, and he's Scott's age or older, maybe. And he said, I'm just spent. I'm spent. I can't do this anymore. I have nothing left to give. And he's sat here and he's a great guy, great Bible teacher, great pastor, but he's worked the better part of his career with a heart of trying to please his father. And that's not what God wants us to do. God wants us to, to um, love him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, to love our neighbors as ourselves. And as we do that with the honesty and sincerity of our heart, not trying to please anybody else, not trying to let it any, have anybody see what we're doing, um, God will be pleased. And, and then in the effort, we're not trying to keep up with something that's impossible to keep up with. Um, we just try to do the best we can to love God, serve Him, please Him, worship Him, and uh, don't worry about what anybody else thinks. There are even lesser motives than trying to please our earthly father. That doesn't sound terrible. I mean, trying to make your dad proud. Okay, that's not a terrible thing. But even that is missing the mark, which is the definition of sin. It is missing the mark and failing to do what God wants us to do. And, uh, we, and especially if we go down the road of trying to get people to pat us on the back or to elevate us or think good of us or whatever. That, this, this idea of humility is so powerful and I think something that all of us need to constantly look for and, and work toward and pray about and say, God, help me to be the humble person you want me to be as a pastor, as a husband, as a father, as an employee or employer or a neighbor, whatever role. We, humility is so powerful. All right, we're, all, we're basically out of time, but let's finish this. Clint, you want to read the last four verses here? And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything she had all she had to live on. And There's, to me, that's, that's giving all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. She had no reservations. She didn't say, let me buy Timmy a snack after uh, Temple today. She said, I'm going to give it all. I'm giving all I've got. And she laid all of herself bare on the line before the Lord. And, uh, and he was pleased with it. So much so that he calls his disciples around, check out what this lady over here did. And we don't know her, 
But my thought is she did that because she understood some of these things we've talked about. She, she loved God because he first loved her. She saw in Jesus what, what we're about to sing. I don't know that. At first, when we first started using this song called Reckless Love, I was like, I don't know. I don't really, I don't really like the word reckless. And in its purest form, maybe there is an argument to make that that's not the best adjective for God. He's not reckless as in careless or, or you know, not careful. He's not that. But it's reckless from my vantage point in the sense that he would love me to such a degree, like in the very first parable of this chapter with the, with the illustration of the, vine, of the uh, vineyard owner that would love others so much that he would even send his only son when it looked like that's probably not going to work out all that well. He did it anyway because he loves us to a degree that makes no sense from a human perspective. It makes no sense. But I don't know about you. I don't know about you, Clint, but I, or everybody else, but I am so thankful that God loves me that way more than I ever could deserve. And so I want to respond to that and give him all that I possibly can. I don't want to hold back for little Timmy or for, for me, for anybody else like you're talking. I, I want to give him everything I possibly can. It's not just about our money. I mean, in her case, two small coins, it wasn't about a massive amount of money. It was about her whole heart. That's why he esteemed her. That's why he valued her because she held back nothing. She gave him all. Reminds me of Romans 12 when God's word tells us, I urge you therefore, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. As living sacrifices. Clint and I joked yesterday, you know, maybe you've heard this, but the problem with a living sacrifice is that you can put it on the altar and it tends to kind of, you know, sneak off and crawl away. And I tend to do that. I lay myself before the Lord. Lord, I'm all yours. But then in a moment, maybe when I think the light's not on me, I tend to crawl back off of the altar and go back to doing my own thing. That's the problem of being a living sacrifice. But in those moments, then I just need to say, Lord, forgive me. Help me to get back up there and lay it all before you and trust you with everything.